Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. Let's pray over this, and then I'm going to let you be seated. Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity in your house to hear from your word. Lord, we ask you to help me to teach in a way that you can anoint. Help me to say something worth saying to these precious people. God, give us understanding as we dive into your word. We believe that it's your will for us to understand what you've written here. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. As we dive into this wonderful book, and I really do love the book of Revelation, there are a few things that we need to point out at the beginning um, in order to help us to understand a little bit of the book. This is going to be a deep study. Um, I'm going to go as slow as I can, simplify it as much as I can, but there's only so much simplifying we can do with the book of Revelation. No doubt there are going to be weeks where after we study, we may not be all slain in the spirit across the front of the tabernacle. It may be one of those weeks that we just soak in the word and then we go home and we rest in the word and we think about it all week and we get here on Sunday and we have a move of God. That's okay. Amen. Those weeks are going to happen. Other weeks are going to happen and it's going to be such a powerful word of God from the book of Revelation that there will be an altar call and there will be a move of the Spirit, and that's okay too. We want both and we want to make room for both. But I want to say that um, as we go through the book of Revelation, if you've got any questions, you if you don't have my number, you can ask me for my number and I'll get you my number or any other way that you know to contact me. You let me know what the question is. If I don't have the answer, I promise you I will do everything I can to find the answer and we'll get it answered. But Revelation is a deep, dense book and we want to take our time with it and make sure that we get through it. But also I want you to to learn as we're going. I want there to be understanding as we progress. I hope you bring your notebooks. I hope you take notes um, and I hope this study blesses. That being said, let's jump into the book of Revelation. Again, some, some, some precursor stuff that we're going to talk about. The book of Revelation is a book of pictures and symbols. You say, wait a minute, I've read the book of Revelation and I saw no pictures there. I'm talking about the pictures that are described in the book of Revelation. If you've ever read it, it is full of symbolism and pictures and beasts coming out of the seas and dragons and rams with several horns and all kinds of symbolism and pictures. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. At least 278 of those verses allude in some way to the Old Testament. Um, One writer, Louis Sperry Schaefer, 
had this to say. He said, Revelation is the grand central station of Scripture. It's the place where all of Scripture unites and combines and flows out of the book of Revelation. Why does God use symbols um, in the book of Revelation? That's a good question. He uses symbols, first of all, because symbols are timeless. Every generation understands a symbol. When you say something like a beast and you use a beast coming out of water, doesn't matter how many generations pass from the time of that writing, it still stirs something in the reader that symbolism holds. That's the reason God uses symbolism. The other reason is because, as I just stated, symbolism is vivid and it often inspires in us deep, strong emotions. I have stated it before. I'll state it again just because it's funny whenever I think of the book of Revelation. I listen to the scripture used to all the time going to bed. One night, I, and I listen to the dramatized version, which has background music, and it has, um, they, they act out the, the, the things that are happening in scripture. So when someone yells, the uh, actor, whoever it is that's recording it, that's reading the scripture, is yelling as well. And so I'm listening to it, and um, this particular night, I didn't start far enough back in the Bible. And about 3.50 in the morning, I woke up heart pounding, pitch black in the room, just fear like you would not believe. And it was because my phone is playing the creepiest music you've ever heard. And there is screaming and gnashing of teeth going on and from my phone. And what's happening is it's the book of Revelation being read. And I promise you that's not something you want to wake up to at 3.50 in the morning. It took me a few minutes to settle down, to calm down, and realize that that is not actually happening right now in my room. Everything's good. Amen. So it is vivid, and it is inspiring, and it, and it does stir something strong inside of us when we read the symbolism that we find in Scripture. There is a proper way to use symbols the use of symbols in Scripture is not, and I want to emphasize this um, because it's easy to do, it is not a license to use your imagination and let your imagination run away with you and decide that whatever you're reading in the book of Revelation, it means this or it means that or it means all of these things. That's not what symbolism is for. It wasn't written so that we can kind of make stuff up as we go and however we prefer it and try to write stuff into Scripture. That's not why we have it. There are three things that we've got to do in order to help us understand the symbolism that we find in the book of Revelation. Number one, pay attention to grammar. Pay attention to what, how it's worded and what is said. The next thing we've got to do is we've got to pay attention to the historical setting uh, that whatever the scripture is saying is taking place in. Never divorce scripture from the historical setting that it's taking place in. The next thing that you've got to do is you've got to trust this, the scriptural context. The scriptural context will help us understand the meaning of the symbols. Symbols typically refer to something literal. 
Often, if you read Scripture, um, if you'll read, if you if you come across something you don't understand, if you'll read ten scriptures back and ten scriptures forward, uh, nine times out of ten, it'll explain to you what that particular scripture that you are struggling with means. For example, um, at the end of chapter one, uh, it talks about um, Jesus having seven stars and seven candlesticks in his right hand. And then right after that, see right there, if, if we're not mistaken, we'll, we'll sit there and we'll take off and we'll be like, bless God, the seven stars mean this and the seven candlesticks mean this and we'll just have fun and go crazy with our imagination. Except right after that, it was the, the scripture defines for us what the seven stars and seven, can, seven candlesticks are. The seven stars are seven angels. The seven candlesticks are seven churches. So the Bible, the context explains to us, expounds to us what the scripture is saying. Always make sure you check scripture first before you decide what scripture is trying to say. Let scripture speak to scripture. Amen. There are several approaches to interpreting the book of Revelation. I'm going to tonight highlight three of these and then I'm going to point to the one that I believe to be the correct way to interpret Scripture. Um, These are uh, maybe challenging words, challenging concepts. Just uh, try to hang with me. The first view is called a preterist view. This view, people that hold to this view, when they look at Revelation, they see everything in the book of Revelation as having happened in the past. So if you're talking with somebody who holds this view, everything in the book they think happened already. It's The prophecies in the book has already happened. Everything's being accomplished. Um, We can be inspired by it, but there's nothing future to look to. That's the preterist view. The next view that a lot of people hold is called a historicism view. And this is the one that really trips a lot of people up. What is the historicism view? They view everything not as happened in the past, but everything's happening right now in the present. Everything they read in the book of Revelation, is it applies right now to this very moment. That's the historicism view. You say, well, what would be wrong with that? I think I like that view. Here's what's wrong with that. Um, if you held that view in the 1700s, you might have been thinking that the end of the world was coming when the British and the Americans got into a war. And you read Revelation and you thought everything is being interpreted for that time and that moment. And then it doesn't happen. And then we fast forward to the 1800s and there's a civil war and America is battling it out. And if you hold to the historicism view, you're reading the book of Revelation in 1800 and you're thinking everything applies to me and my day right now and this character's got to be the Antichrist, and that right there, and this and that. And what happens then? The the view changes because nothing came to pass. And then you fast forward to World War II, and if you're holding to this view and you're reading it, of course, everything's happening in my day, in my moment right now, so that means Hitler's got to be the Antichrist, and these people have got to be this portion of Revelation. And then what happens? Hitler ends up killing himself, can't be the Antichrist, Um, And so we move on. The historicism view, the the danger in it is taking everything and deciding this has to be applied to my day, my hour right now. 
We don't hold to that view because it's possible that it doesn't. It's possible that it's speaking 50 years from now. It is possible that it's talking about right here, our moment right now, but we leave open the possibility to uh, it speaking to another time and another moment. And that leads us to the view that I believe is the correct view. And everyone holds a view while they read the book of Revelation. It's a way of interpreting scripture. It's a way of understanding what you are reading. This view, I believe, is the correct view. It's called the futurist view. What the futurist view does is it it splits the book of Revelation into three categories. Three categories. The first category is things that have already happened. Things that have happened in the past. The second category would have been in John's day, the things that were happening right then. So Jesus says, I've got a word for seven churches. I want you to give them the word. So that would have been a present happening. And then the third view would have been everything that's going to happen in the future. So for us today, we break that down into two views then, right? Because everything that happened in John's day has already happened. So we believe that the first three chapters, what we're going to study first in the book of Revelation, has already happened. This is history. This is stuff that happened. John wrote to seven real churches. God had a specific literal word for seven actual churches. And we believe that has happened in the past. But we also believe that from chapter 4 to chapter 22 is the future of the world. We believe that it's the culmination of the end of the world. The end of the world will end with chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. We believe that's all future prophecy. So it helps us to understand scripture as we study it, to understand chapter 4 through 22 is in the future. Chapter 1 through 3 has already happened. Amen. So let's look at a little bit of the background of the book of Revelation Tonight, again, is going to be more of an introduction to the book, and then we'll get deeper and deeper as we go. The book of Revelation was, of course, written by the Apostle John. We find that in the, um, we find that in the first verse of chapter 1. Now, there are those that attack that view today. I'm not going to deal with the attacks. Um, I trust the Word of God, and I believe you do as well that the writer of the book was John the Apostle, and so we'll leave that at that. If you, if you are doubting that, you can come to me later, and we'll talk about why we believe that John, because there is other evidence that he wrote the book. The book was written around A.D. 95, A.D. 96. That is a while after um, Jesus has passed away. Uh, you may... Um, look at that and think, well, it's interesting that John was walking with Jesus, but then he lived all the way till 8095 and ended up writing this book. What that tells us is that John was a very young man whenever he was walking with Jesus, even as young possibly as 18 years old. John lived in Ephesus. Um, that's where he spent the latter end of his ministry. He was an elder, a bishop, if you will. Those words are interchangeable. He was an overseer of the seven churches of Asia Minor, which are the seven churches that we're going to deal with in the book of Revelation. He was the, he was the watchman, if you will, the overseer of those churches. John eventually 
He lived in a time of great persecution. All of the disciples actually died very horrendous deaths, every one of them, except for the apostle John. He's the only one that didn't die a horrendous death, but he did. Uh, he was subject to, to attempts on his life. Um, for instance, history tells us that uh, there was an attempt to boil John alive, and it didn't work. God spared him from that. There are other, um, there was an attempt to beat him to death. He survived that. And then we know that John was eventually arrested for preaching and he was sent to the Isle of Patmos. Now, what was Patmos? Patmos was an island about 50 miles away from the, his hometown of Ephesus. And what's interesting about Ephesus is it was a place kind of like Alcatraz, except it would be bigger. Um, if you know what Alcatraz is, it's in San Francisco, in the Bay of San Francisco. It was, it's said to have been unescapable, although some people uh, would argue that a few ended up escaping from there. Um, Patmos is similar to that. It's a place where the Romans sent their prisoners. So if you got in really bad trouble by Rome, they wouldn't deal with you. They would just send you to Patmos. And while you were on Patmos, they would force you to work all day, um, basically grinding stone that they would use for their roads that they would build. The Romans were famous for building roads, and they would use the labor from the prisoners on the Isle of Patmos um, to build those roads. Most people, the majority of people that got stranded to Patmos, if you were alive then and you were put on Patmos, you just believed that you were going to die on Patmos. There really wasn't much hope. Almost everybody who got put on Patmos died on Patmos. John, however, outlived the emperor, the emperor Domitian. He outlived him, and the next emperor that came along, came along actually let John off of the island of Patmos. But it's important to note, that John's revelation, the revelation, or rather not John's revelation, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to John. It was given to him on the Isle of Patmos. So think about that. In um, one of the most difficult situations of his life, in a time where he's having to work harder probably than he's ever physically worked before, he's most likely exhausted all day and all night. Somehow on that island, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And God was able to speak to him and give him this revelation. So it's interesting. That's just a a point that we can take that it doesn't matter what situation you're in in your life. You need to stay sensitive to the moving of God and to the spirit of God. Because you may feel like you're in the worst situation you've ever been in. You don't know how any good can come from this. And it might be in that moment that God gives you a word that will not only help you, but will help other believers in Jesus Christ. John wrote four other books. We know we know that he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the epistles of John, First uh, John, Second John, and Third John. And he wrote the book of Revelation. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they deal with the humanity, really, of Jesus, while John's Gospel, it really stresses the deity of Jesus. It gives us another perspective. Uh, Let's look at John chapter 1, um, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll jump to verse 14. He said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and darkness comprehendeth it not. So right at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John is trying to get across a revelation of Jesus um, that he wants everyone to have. The fact that Jesus was a prophet, but he was not just a prophet. Jesus was a teacher, but he was not just a teacher. He was more than just a good man. Jesus was God manifested in the flesh. John had a deep revelation of this, and he wanted to get that out. His writing is just a little bit different uh, of a texture and note than the other Gospels. Look at verse 14. He said, And the Word, the Word that was in the beginning, that was with God, that was God, the same Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So right there, John ties Jesus to the God that created everything. John ties Jesus to the eternal God that was there from the beginning. John says that they are one and the same. Amen. So right off the bat, we see John's writing are of a different nature. Um, his epistles, even in the epistles, he he has the, he strikes this same note. So look at First John chapter one, verses one and two. He said that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. I don't know when it happened. I don't know when the moment hit. We know that there were moments that the disciples didn't really know who Jesus was. After Jesus spoke to the wind and waves, and he calmed the wind and waves, the Bible says that the disciples were sore amazed in themselves, and they said, what manner of man is this that he's able to command the waves and the sea and the wind and they listened to his voice so they didn't have a complete understanding of who Jesus was but eventually don't know when it happened but John got a revelation of who Jesus was and he says that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled the word of life so at some point, John realized that that guy that we were with, that teacher that we were with, that prophet that we were with, we touched Almighty God. When Jesus touched me, I was being touched by Almighty God. When Jesus spoke to me, Almighty God was speaking to me. John eventually got that revelation. John was very, as you can see, very passionate about who Jesus was, and that passion carries over into the book of Revelation. Amen. Brother Treese, uh, he says about the book of Revelation, it is the summation of God's experience with men. So God's experience, God's moving, God's working in the realm of humanity can all be summed up in the book of Revelation. The purpose of the book of Revelation, as one preacher so aptly put it, is to give the advanced history of how Jesus Christ, by means of judgment, becomes king of the world. That's what Revelation is. That's what this book is. It's advanced history. 
I love that. I love that phrase, advanced history. It's history about something that hasn't even happened yet. But it's as good as if it's already happened because it's in the Word of God and the Word of God is forever settled. So the book of Revelation, what is it? It's as if you're reading a history book about things that are are going to happen, but according to the Word have already happened. They're forever settled. Amen. I love that word. It is advanced history. So the whole book is intended, the entire book of Revelation is intended to present Jesus as the glorified and the exalted one. You read the Gospels, from the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Gospel of John, all of them are about the Son of Man and the suffering servant. Jesus' role as man. Jesus' role as flesh and blood, what he came to do. Revelation presents Jesus not anymore as the Son of Man or the suffering servant. The book of Revelation presents Jesus as the victorious one. The one who has overcome death, hell, and the grave. The one that has overcome mere humanity. Amen. Jesus is presented as the victorious one. There are those um, that would refuse to open the book of Revelation because it is perceived to be without practical application. They would say that there's nothing practical in the book of Revelation, so we might as well not even study it. We might as well not even look at it. We can't understand it. But the book does have practical application. Let's talk about a few of the things that it does. Number one, it puts history into perspective. It puts history into perspective. When I read history, I read it in the view of everything is pointing in a certain direction. It's all pointing towards the book of Revelation. I'm reading about Winston Churchill right now and about everything he did to save Western civilization in uh, World War II and his life up until that point. And as I read about that, I think to myself how God raised up somebody in that time to, this would be my understanding, he was holding back the spirit of the Antichrist because it wasn't time yet. It wasn't his time. So God needed somebody and he raised up a man that was able to do the job and Winston Churchill did the job. Some people have called him the prophetic statesman. Amen. But when you read history and you think, how in the world did that happen? You can look at the book of Revelation and you can understand God's got his hand throughout history, throughout every moment of history. So the first thing it does that Revelation does is it gives us a perspective on history. The next thing it does is it completes the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament and it kind of, it kind of stops you short. There's a pause that takes place between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What does Revelation do? Revelation completes the Old Testament. It finishes the Old Testament. It shows us where the Old Testament was heading, where the prophets were speaking of and what they were speaking of. The next thing that it does, Revelation, if we read it right and we study it right, is it ought to draw us to repentance. As you read the book of Revelation, there should be something stirring in you that wants to get right with God, that wants to be right with God, and it ought to draw us to a place of repentance. The next thing, practical application, as you read the book of Revelation, there are times that it ought to just stir inside of you a spirit of worship. 
you ought to walk away from studying the book of Revelation sometime and just feel like giving God praise for the fact that he is victorious. Amen. It's interesting that... uh, we, we get encouraged, we've been studying um, at the end of, of 1 Corinthians about how Jesus rose from the dead and the proof, and we love to preach about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, and we, and we are encouraged by it. And if we're encouraged by that, how much more so should we be encouraged by revelation that tells us that Jesus is now the victorious king of the world? That's the future that we're heading for. Amen. The next thing it should do is it should inspire inside of us a desire to reach our family and friends with the gospel of Jesus Christ because it gives us a realization that the world is not going to continue as it is forever. But the world is heading to some point. There's some place in history that we are going. We are progressing to something. We are going to the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes, it's going to be too late. So it should inspire in us as we read this book a desire to reach somebody with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's practical application of the book of Revelation. The next thing it does is it empowers us to live a productive life because we know that Jesus is in control, that the end of the book says that he wins. We can be productive in this life. We don't have to worry about life, which, which leads me to my next point. It empowers us to live a positive life. We don't have to be negative all the time. We don't have to be down in the dumps and depressed all the time. We can look at history and we can, and we can look at the news and we can understand, yeah, not everything's going our way in the news. I just read another article, uh, where in Turkey, Christians are being severely persecuted. Not everything is going our way in the news, but I can read the book of Revelation and I understand that everything is progressing to an end point where Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and I can be positive about that. I can walk with my head held high understanding that at the end of the day, Jesus wins. Amen. Jesus wins. That's practical application. So that is a summation, if you will, of the book of Revelation. Tonight, we're just going to look at three verses because I've already taken a lot of your time um, in that early portion there, that summation. So we're just going to look at three verses tonight in the book of Revelation. Let's look at Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse number 1. It reads like this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which most shortly, which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant, John. Amen. So let's focus on that word revelation. What does the word revelation mean? Because in our modern day, that word can be confusing. That word is apocalypsis in the Greek. That's where we get our word apocalypse. What it means is revealing or unveiling. Revealing or unveiling. So what we find here is the book of Revelation is actually the book of the revealing or the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That's the central theme of the book. Amen. We find the central nature of the book. It's revealing or unveiling. There are those who would argue 
that, as I said before, the book of Revelation cannot be understood and so should be left alone. But we find right there in in verse number 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Revelation that it can be understood. It was designed to be understood. In fact, uh, the book says that it's the unveiling, the revealing, not not the veiling, not the hiding, but the unhiding the revealing of Jesus Christ. So it's not a mystery that's being uh, blocked from us or held from us. It's a mystery that's being unveiled for us, that's being revealed to us. There are truths, that means, that are here in the book of Revelation that have been hid previously and unknown, but now are being revealed to us. You'll notice that there, if you've read the book of Matthew, verses, chapters 24 and 25, there's a lot of parallels between those and the book of Revelation. Others speak of, hint at, allude to the second coming of the Lord. Other books in the New Testament, they kind of, uh, they kind of um, quietly hint at the Lord coming back and allude to the Lord coming back and and even some of them just say the Lord's coming back. But we look at the book of Revelation and it's no longer hinted, it's no longer alluded to, it's given in vivid detail the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Its principal goal, the goal of Revelation then, is just like we just found in that first verse. It is to reveal Jesus, to unveil Jesus in his glorified state. Amen. That's the point. That's what it's going to do for us. It's going to show that Jesus is no longer just a man. He is now the glorified king. Amen. He's glorified. But there are other things that it reveals as well. It reveals our need for holiness. As we get further in this book, this is a book, this is one of those books in the, in the New Testament. Most of the New Testament, you find themes of mercy and love, and it's great and it's awesome. But when you read the, and I don't want to scare you, it's not meant to scare you, but when you read the book of Revelation, you don't find Jesus on the mercy seat anymore. You find Jesus as judge in the book of Revelation. And that's what we're looking at here. So as we read the book of Revelation, you're going to confront your need for holiness. And when I say holiness, I'm not just talking about outward look. I'm talking about inside as well. There's an inward holiness that this book draws us to as we read from its pages. The next thing that it reveals is it reveals warnings to the church of the devastation of sin. Uh, one, as we'll get into it later, one of the churches even has the threat of a candlestick being removed from them. Very powerful. We'll get into that later. The next thing it reveals is the limitless power of Jesus Christ. He is exalted, as it says in Philippians, higher than ever before. He's at the highest place. Nobody has ever been exalted as high as Jesus Christ is. He then has limitless power. That's the God we serve. It also reveals the ultimate triumph of believers. So again, that ought to encourage us that we are not headed for defeat. We're not in the, you know, if you ever sit beside me watching an Oklahoma football game, I'll get real nervous in the fourth quarter, especially if we've got a quarterback that doesn't know what he's doing. And we're down by three, and we've got a minute left, and I need him to make a play. And I'm just sweating and I'm nervous. And my little niece 
and I thought she was going to grow up just like me, but it turns out not the case maybe. But she would holler at the, at the screen too because they were making bad plays. And we were nervous. Want to know why? Because I didn't know how it was going to go. I would like to have thought that, you know what, they're going to pull this out. I just know that they're going to pull it out. But in the moment, I don't know. In fact, most of the time, they're not going to pull it out. I just, I have come to that conclusion. It's just not going to happen. But as you're reading the book of Revelation, understand the score. You might read the book of Revelation and it might look like the church is three down in the fourth quarter with a minute left. But you can be encouraged. You can sit back and watch like you're watching the rerun of the the game and understand that we do win in the end. It may look like we're not going to win because we're down by three with a minute left and we're marching for that end touchdown. But we know because we've read this book that we do win. The touchdown was made. Amen. Forgive that sports reference, but I'm, I'm trying to encourage us. That's part of the book, the ultimate triumph of believers. It's revealed through the book of Revelation. The other thing that it reveals is the victory of Jesus and the doom of Satan. I believe that Satan has his hand as much as anyone else in keeping people from studying and reading the book of Revelation. Why? Because the book of Revelation tells us about the future of Satan. It shows us what his future is. His future is not a triumph. His future is not victory. His future is defeat. The book says that he's going to be thrown in a pit. The book says that he's going to be thrown in a fiery in a, in a fiery lake and he's going to burn for all of eternity. I wouldn't want that, you know, propagated all over the place if that was written about me. I would be trying to stop it as well. And so there is a push from Satan to stop people from studying the book of Revelation. And that's why we ought to study it even more so. Amen. Because it gives us encouragement. The next thing it says, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Here we see the order of the transmission of the message. It came from God. It went to Jesus and then to John and it was signified by an angel. Now I'm going to take a little bit of time right here and we're going to look at this. We can't run over this. Um, because it can be confusing for a oneness believer if we're not careful. How do we as oneness believers reconcile the fact that the book says that God gave to Jesus a revelation to give to his servants? As oneness believers, that looks a little confusing because we believe that they are one and yet we see two different things happening here. We see God giving Jesus a revelation. So was there a mistake there? Absolutely not. There are no mistakes in the book, in the word of God. According to Daniel chapter 2, verses 27 through 29, we're not going to read it, I'm just going to sum it up. It says that only God is the revealer of mysteries. Only God has the power to reveal mysteries. Amos chapter 3 and 7 says God reveals his secrets to his prophets. So God is the giver of revelation. God gives revelation. God reveals secrets. He is the source and it can only come from him. So when the Bible speaks of God the Father, understand who it's speaking about. It's speaking about the God of the universe, the God that fills all of the universe. That's God the Father. That's the supreme being of all the universe. And the Bible says that God is a spirit, that no man has seen God in all of his glory and lived. 
So we have that understanding of who God is, and then comes along Jesus. Who do we know as Jesus? We know the Bible says that Jesus was God manifested in flesh. It was God in human form. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So here we go. Jesus is the mediator between humans and the glory of God. We be, Paul's, or John said, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We were able to look on God because Jesus, because he robed himself in flesh and came as a man. Jesus is the mediator. Amen. So that means God speaks through. Jesus is the vehicle that God uses to speak to humanity. Look at John 5, 19. I hope I'm not confusing you here. We are oneness people, and this is oneness scripture. I promise. The word of God doesn't, treat it, doesn't, doesn't teach a trinity. It teaches one God, and I'm going to explain it to you. John chapter 5, verse 19. Look at what Jesus said. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that ye marvel. So God is revealing to Jesus certain things. For as the Father raises up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment to the Son. Verse 23, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. So what do we have here? We have Jesus as the mediator between God and humanity. So Jesus is flowing and working under the authority of God. Amen. So everything Jesus does is fed to him from God. God is giving him direction. God is teaching him what to say. God is giving him his power. He has no power except what God gives him. Look at John chapter 8, verse 28. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. So Jesus said, I only speak what God gives me, what God teaches me. Jesus says, I do nothing of myself. Everything I preach comes from the Father. Everything I do comes from the Father. I operate in the power that the Father gave me. So, sounds confusing. At the end of the day, it looks like, and you might say, that we've got two somethings here. We've got the Father and we've got the Son. Now, we understand that as the Father being the deity of Christ, the Spirit of God, and Jesus being the flesh, the man, Christ Jesus. Amen. So what do we have in the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation is the assimilation, the mixing together, if you will, of the Spirit of God and the man, Christ Jesus. Brother Haney likened it like this. You take... Uh, a cup of water and you put lemon juice inside of the cup of water, you can no longer separate the lemon juice or the juice from the water. 
You can call it lemon water if you want. The, the, the texture of that water is forever changed. You'll never get it just plain water again, and you'll never be able to find that juice again. The same thing happens uh, with Jesus and God. They are combined now for the rest of eternity. Jesus is the glorified God. He is that God that fills all of eternity. Amen. That's how we have one. almost done anyways so anyways this is how we have uh one god revelation shows us that so there's not confusing when it says that god gave the revelation to jesus in order to give to his servants what it's talking about is the deity giving it to the man christ jesus amen and as revelation progresses the revelation that John has, the understanding that John has of Jesus is going to progress as well. John is going to go from seeing Jesus just as a man and God as a spirit to understanding that Jesus is that God. Amen. That they're combined for all of eternity. Okay, and then he says, and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Signified, if you, if you read it like, it like it's written, it says, signified. So he's showing, if you will, by a sign. That's why we have the pictures and the illustrations and the symbols in the book of Revelation. It is a book of pictures. The angel revealed things to John by pictures and by symbols. Who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. We're going to jump because we're running out of time, to Revelation chapter 3. Let's read it really quickly. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. Verse 3, what did I say? Sorry, uh, we're in verse number 3. Revelation 1, verse number 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for time is at hand. I want to say at this portion, it is a shame that so many people neglect this great book, this wonderful book of Revelation. This is the only book in the entire Bible that specifically states that it comes with a blessing for those that read it and keep the words that are in. It was not, this book was not meant to be a burden. It was not meant to scare anyone. It was not meant for that. Instead, this book was meant to be a blessing. And those that neglect the the reading and the understanding of this book, they miss out on a great blessing from Almighty God. Amen. This is the first of seven beatitudes or blessings, if you will, that's contained in the book of Revelation. There are several blessings that are contained throughout the book. There is a blessing at the beginning, and in chapter 22 and verse 14, we find another blessing. So let's look real quick at this blessing. Who all is blessed? There's a threefold blessing here. Number one, the hearer is blessed. In that time, the... uh, Rather, the reader, not I have written down the hearer, but it's the reader. The reader is blessed. In that time, it was customary for the church to gather together, and they would just read Scripture and read Scripture. Why? Because not everybody owned a Bible. They had to come to church in order to hear the Word of God. So they read Scripture. 
So when it says, blessed is the reader, it's talking about the person who would stand in front of the church and would read to the church the word of the Lord. Blessed is the reader. Today, you have the opportunity. You don't just have to come to church and hear the word read, but you can read it at your house. So you can be blessed by being the reader. The next thing is, it was blessing the listener. So not only was the person that was, that was declaring the word that was written blessed according to this, but also the person that was listening to the word, they also were blessed, the audience, the church. And then, this is the key to both of them being blessed, and it's the obeyer. Those that keep and obey the things that are written in this book have a blessing from God. It's the only book in the Bible that specifically gives you, that ties a blessing to the reading and obeying of the book. All prophecy then is morally directed. So there's a reason why prophecy is given, why prophecy is written. There's a goal of prophecy. If there's a blessing that is attached, that means that this book is able to be understood. So some people might say, I don't read the book of Revelation because I can't understand it. But the Bible says that there's a blessing attached to it, which means that there must be a way to understand the book. It was designed to give us comfort and peace. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about the book. He said, if your understanding of the book of Revelation does not help you rejoice, you are misunderstanding it. So if you read the book of Revelation and fear grips your heart or anything but a rejoicing, you're misunderstanding the point of the book of Revelation. It was designed to give you peace. It was designed to give you joy, to give you comfort, because we are victorious in the end. Amen. For the time is at hand. Sister Melanie, if you want to come to the piano, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up really quickly here. There's a great gulf between God's idea of time and ours. God's idea of time and ours. He says for the time, uh, he says in verse 3, for the time is at hand. Many look at this and they say, well, right there, the Bible is wrong, so you can just throw it out. John was mistaken, but John wasn't mistaken. He was no more mistaken than Paul was mistaken when Paul wrote something similar. He, all John was doing was he was yielding to the sense inside of all Christians that there's a nearness to the coming of the Lord. The time is at hand. And really what John was saying is the coming, the second coming of the Lord is the last event, the last prophetic event on God's timetable. It's the next thing that's got to happen. And so John says the time is at hand. In, in Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, um, that in the end times, things are going to get bad, and he lifts a, a bunch of things that are going to happen. When was the end times? The end times is literally from the falling of the Holy Ghost until now. It covers all of that time. So John says the time is at hand, and that applied to his time, and it applies to our time as well. And that's why we've got to be careful. Um, we've got to be careful assuming everything written in here is directly for us, and it means that it's going to be applied in our day. John felt like it was going to apply possibly in his day. Others believed it was going to apply in their day. We hope, it's the hope of Christians, we hope that it's going to happen in our day. But it might not. But it doesn't matter. The, that sense is still inside of us of the soon coming king. And what's the importance of that sense? That, that, 
that drive that's in us of the imminency of, of the return of the Lord, that helps me stay right with God. The fact that I could meet him at any time. There's this story, right? I'm coming to a close, I promise. There's this story of this groundkeeper for this mansion. This guy owns a mansion and he's got this person. He's watching over his house. And this tourist visits this mansion. And he sees that the mansion is surrounded by beautiful gardens. Well manicured, well kept up. Beautiful, perfect looking place. And he's talking to the gardener and he's asking him a question. He says, man, this place is kept so beautiful, so nice. How often does the owner come to visit? And the gardener says, the keeper of the house says, in 20 years, the owner has visited four times. Four times in 20 years. And the person was shocked and said, so he's only visited four times in 20 years, and yet you keep this place looking like he could come tomorrow? And he said, no, absolutely not. I keep this place looking like he could come back today. Today, not tomorrow. And that's the way we live. We say, we don't know. He could come back tomorrow. He may, he may not come back for 50 years. But I'm going to live like he could come back today, right now. I don't know if he could come back in the middle of the night. I don't know if he could come back before we even exit this building. But I'm going to live in a way that pleases him, in a way that is anticipating the coming of the Lord. And that's what John was writing here. For the time is at hand. What is he telling Christians? The time is now. Live as if at any moment Jesus, you could see Jesus. Amen. I wonder if you could stand. I'm so excited about our study of Revelation and what we're going to learn and what we're going to gather and get into. I wonder if we could just take a moment, wherever you're at, if you want to come to the front, if you want to pray where you're at. And I wonder if you could just pray that God would open your heart to whatever he's got for us in the study of this book, in the book of Revelation. Would you do that right now?